This is the scripture from Matthew 7, 28 and 29. And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Missy. Well, hi. <laughs> My name is Stacy Croft, and if I haven't gotten to meet you, I'm the uh, lead pastor here at In Town. And um, this morning is a little unusual because I go back and forth, and once a quarter, Scott Sauls, who's at, I'm going to roll this over here because I don't need it, um, at uh, the central campus, and I do this kind of do si do. So I was flying through Green Hills with this thing on. I'm sure people were like, what is wrong with that guy? And uh, get a lot of looks. But I'm glad to see y'all. And so um, if I don't get to meet you after the service, please email me. I hope you sign the black books or something. Uh, I'd love to get together with you because I'm typically here all the time. So, and in, uh, in this area, so office and everything we do over here. So I'd love to get to know you and meet you. Um, and if you're new this morning, uh, just as kind of know, we've, we may have been go- going through the uh, Sermon on the Mount for a long time, and today's kind of the conclusion of that. And um, it's kind of a, it's been a, um, I don't want to say easy, because anytime your heart and soul are kind of upheaved, uh, that's not a real easy thing, right? Uh, it's, it's been a sweet thing. It's been sweet for me to go through. I've needed it a lot. But it finishes with these two verses that I find really important because what Matthew is doing is he's setting something up for us uh, that shows us that this isn't like just anybody else. Uh, I remember being in London and um, any of you have gone there before, there's a place called Hyde Park, interesting place. Uh, You can go on particular, I think, Sundays or other days maybe, and um, and see people actually stand up on a crate or platform and they typically like to just pronounce uh, kind of things that come to mind. Uh, You can have political activists, uh, people, you know, there, and I remember people cheering around specific people uh, for a certain uh, political campaign. I remember um, seeing uh, religious extremist kind of people. Uh, I remember even trying to talk to one of those people and uh, at, trying to ask questions and uh, they didn't like that. They just pretty much ignored me, kind of looked over me, <laughs> just kind of kept talking. Uh, but you could find any sort of voice that you really wanted to listen to. It was really kind of fascinating. And if you did, you would go around and everyone seemed to kind of have their kind of stance, their position uh, in that place, position of authority. And And I find that to be a really interesting thing in our cultural narrative because it's almost like a physical uh, internet of sorts, right? I mean, we typically go to the internet or listen to somebody because we want to have sources of authority. But what I find even more fascinating is in our cultural narrative on authority, we love to quote people, you know, when people say, experts say, or scholars wrote this, you know, we, we like to have those people in our corner and yet we want to be the authority. So there consistently is this, this tug, this tension in our cultural narrative of who's the authority? <laughs> Me, this person, who do I listen to? And, and, and all of us are listening to someone. 
I mean, one of the problems with the internet even, as, as we may have discussed in smaller circles, is, is you, can o- you can go on there and find things that just bolster your opinion and your authority. There's not oftentimes a real dialogue happening. So how do we actually know who we're listening to? Because who li- you listen to instructs how you live. And look, this finishes with these two simple verses for a reason. It is very easy for us to listen to the Sermon on the Mount and go, okay, next series at church, what's going on? And if you're here this morning and maybe you're coming back in the doors of a church, you're like, great, I missed that one. Maybe I'll hear something else. I mean, what's the point of this? Is this just a a link, a conclusion? My question to you and to me is, what makes Jesus any different? Truly, what makes Jesus any different from someone else on a soapbox? He was standing up on a mountainside He gave great teaching to people. What makes it different? Because for many of us, we may say he has authority even, but does he really? Is Is there a foothold for us to actually move into reality from his authority? I just have been sitting with people even as of recently who are expressing in tears of marriages falling apart. Of, of, of struggles with children, struggles with being on campus and actually, and, and even a bullying. How, do we, how does that reality fit with this authority? Or is Jesus just another voice we can maybe pick and choose? Maybe he has a larger crowd around him, but does it really have some engagement in us? And I think that that's why Matthew finishes this way. It's a, a powerful understanding of Jesus saying, okay, maybe we'll talk about character. We'll talk about, you know, a little bit of hypocrisy and a way to deal with this. But when Jesus comes to that last four sections that we looked at and he talks about heaven and hell, it starts to become real. It starts to make us uncomfortable. Because then, then, don't you, maybe as the sermon goes along, go, I don't know how much I like your authority. I don't know how much I really want it to speak into my life. I'll maybe leave for the second, or maybe hear two-thirds of it, maybe leave for the second half. How does Jesus have authority that's different? Two ways, I think, that are very simple that Matthew draws out here. One is that his wisdom is different. The what he spoke was very different categorically from others. And how he spoke it, his humility was also different. So his wisdom and his humility, how he unpacked that, what he said and how he said it were incredibly different. You know, when he expresses this in wisdom, it's, there's this negation here and it happens over and over. In verse 29, it says, for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. So that, that language actually had authority and not as their scribes, if you kind of do a word search, it goes over and over and over throughout the gospels, throughout the narratives of Jesus. Because there's this negation that there's something different that he's presenting to us. And in large part, it's wisdom. Even in their time, they were astonished at the strength and power of what he's speaking. Astonished was a word that communicated strength, that there was some strength about it. And, and you need to think about this with me for a second because when they went up on a mountainside to hear Jesus, what, they were asking similar questions. What really makes you different from someone else? And they're hearing a man who was uneducated, who was really out of nowhere, 
speak about things in such bold ways that it blew them away. They actually had to sit, they were literally astonished with the strength and power and wisdom of what he was communicating. And it was not as their scribes because for centuries, the scribes actually took what was being said and they would just try and say, you need to follow this. Here's the law. For centuries, they would build laws around laws in order to keep that kind of that kind of system for themselves in order that they could keep their relationship with God, other people. But what began to happen was there was an elitist group that would say, I'm I'm holding this. That's why they're not as their scribes. You can tell there's already, there's an us, them. There's the scribes and the religious leaders that can really, they're in and we're out. They keep it and we don't. And we got to kind of fit into their authority structure. But Jesus began to speak in a different way. He said there's more than the rules to keep. He was saying there's wisdom there. There's deeper meaning behind this. It's not just you keep this, you have a relationship. Jesus came along and he said, it's not just about you having lust, you're an adulterer. It's not just about you having anger, you're a murderer. And that was incredibly potent and new for them. It totally blew their categories because for so long they were trying to to make the system work, to fit into that cultural narrative of authority. I love that, this quote, I've loved it all my life, of G.K. Chesterton, who was a great writer and thinker and philosopher, kind of a precursor to C.S. Lewis. And he put it this way. He said, to accept everything is an exercise. To understand everything is a strain. The poet only desires exaltation and expansion, a world to stretch himself in. The poet only asks to get his, heaven in, his head into the heavens. It is the logician who seeks to get the heavens into his head, and it is his head that splits. The madman is not the man who has lost his reason. The madman is the man who has lost everything except his reason. What Chesterton is getting at is not that reason isn't important, but what he's saying is we've devised these systems of rules of living by the law without it actually puncturing our character, without actually transforming us from the inside out that we can keep it, we can be in, or we can be out. You can do that. You could be great at keeping all the rules and never know the wisdom of applying the law. And that's what Jesus did. He applied the complexity of it. See, 80, 90% of life is wisdom. It's not this black, white, yes, no, do this, do that kind of life. That's not how life works. Life is messy. And and, and applying the law and the system of rules in that way doesn't get you far. You can say, oh yeah, I'm keeping everything and yet have a messed up life. Because there's no application of wisdom of God's rule of his truth into your world. There's a wisdom differential here. A massive wisdom differential. That Jesus is showing us. He's saying, unlike what you've heard, I have authority that's different than what you understand. He doesn't just say, here's the law. He says, here's how it applies so deeply. It's going to upheave your character and you have to look at things that you would not want to look before. See, it leveled everybody. Scribes, Pharisees, all those who would be considered sinners in 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 that day, that they literally were called sinners. 
Everyone was leveled. Everyone. Because of the complexity of that. There was a wisdom differential. Because think about this. Look, if, if, if Jesus is just like anybody else, what makes his teaching and his wisdom as a, as a philosopher, as a sage, as a teacher, any greater than anyone else? If he simply says, your character must be transformed. Hey, try and be less angry. Try, try not to, to let sexuality really run you. Try and, try and care for your enemies well. That, that's a good one. I mean, does that not sound backwards to you? How in the world do we actually change? There has to be something more because Jesus said it has to go beyond the simple rules to the heart. The application is perfect. And his statement, even of authority, is different. If when he begins even over and over and he says, you've heard it said, but I say to you, that causes us to say there's something that he's wanting us to know here and that it's a deeper authority. How does it have footholds in reality of your life? Look, just recently, uh, my two-year-old son, um, Cole, uh, busted his chin wide open. And <clears throat> as we were discussing... <laughs> in, of course, panic and blood on us, uh, what do we do, right? And at some point, Cole kind of settled after crying and the initial pain. He was fine. In fact, he fell asleep, probably from the, you know, trauma of everything. But he fell asleep and he was doing okay. We went to the ER and uh, the, the, the doctor was actually funny. Uh, and, and I can count, um, if you add up the number of years between my two sons, we've been to the ER that many times. And so I'm very familiar with ER visits. Uh, it's <laughs> the trajectory, the conversations, the whole thing. Well, the doctor was funny. He said, well, it couldn't go any further. You know, he's like looking at this huge wound in his chin. He's like, well, good, head stopped where it could. You know, it's like, oh, oh okay, great. I, I think that's comforting. Um, so then I, I, I proceeded to have to, to my sweet boy Cole, who's not crying at the moment. He's not sad. He's, he's a little bit timid because he's like, what's this new environment? All of a sudden we have to hold him down. And he's crying so hard, that, you know, that silent cry, you know, like you crying so hard, there's no, no, nothing coming but air. Like, and just tears coming out of his head. He, he has no idea. And I'm literally holding his legs, this precious little dude, while my wife is holding his arms and they are gluing his chin back together. Now, we could have easily sat there and said, you know what? He's, he's doing fine. He's not really crying. Maybe this kind of thing in his chin will just kind of work its way out, you know? And he'll just kind of, maybe, you know? We'll just be, he'll be okay, but what am I doing in that moment? I, I, there's no wisdom. I may be applying the rule. That, yeah, he's fine. It may work on the outside, but what's actually not being done is healing for him, not actually going in, holding him down, the excruciating pain of watching my son bawling while I'm the one that's having to hold him down and they glue his chin back together. This two-year-old boy has no idea of the of the need that he has for himself and his suffering. Now, do you think the rules apply there? Every one of you in this room has a narrative. I just sat with somebody just yesterday who expressed the fact that their marriage is falling apart. How in the world does God's 
wisdom, Jesus' wisdom and authority in his words, how is that comforting in that moment? Is it? What differentiates it from anything else? Do, is, there, is there just a verse that changes it? Is there some, what is it? Is that in the midst of it, he's doing things and his wisdom differential, even knowing where we are, is greater because think about how he's unpacking character with every line of that Sermon on the Mount. He doesn't stop at the open wound. He goes in to the places where you and I are adulterers, where you and I are murderers, where we want to show that we are so righteous in our prayer life and our giving. If there's anything, think about this, that should push our buttons is that Jesus claimed exclusive truth. If there's a cultural narrative of today of authority, it's that those Christians, those people that may, and maybe you're here this morning and you're like, gosh, this is what I think. They claim this exclusive truth. Where does it all lead? You ever think about that Jesus actually in the last four sermons that I had to give, this is me explaining Jesus, not me giving it, is talking about heaven and hell some of the most potent, uncomfortable passages in his sermon, and he's claiming exclusive truth, that he doesn't avoid that. There is authority, there is statement of authority there that we have to think about and listen to. Because he is saying there's something different. If you really want your character changed, if you really want to see transformation, my wisdom is not like other wisdom. It's not a surfacey try and do these things. It's a, there has to be going into the depths of your heart where you see the worst parts of yourself and be transformed. The wound is not enough to address a band-aid. It has to be addressed surgically. And his wisdom is greater, it's more profound. It goes deeper than just a philosopher who, who would say, try and shape your life around this. Look, the events of Jesus' life shape his teachings. They push that forward. The events of his life, it's not just that he taught, it's that he was his sermon. He lives this sermon. And it's so amazing. Did you ever think about that Jesus, and he's standing on that mountainside, has, there, there are people, even in the Bible, that have more degrees of education than he does. Many of you in this room had more degrees of education. You could say, I have studied more, I have gone more, and yet he is the one that so many bend their knee to. There's a, a man named Sheldon Van Auken who's a great author who wrote about his transformation of actually experiencing Christianity in the intellect and his wisdom. In one of his books, he, he writes um, called A Severe Mercy. He actually expresses what it's like to encounter the intelligence uh, and Christianity kind of together. He said, he said this, what was so odd was that quite a lot of people, not just sheep, but highly intelligent people did apparently believe it. T.S. Eliot, for instance, in fact, was quite a few physicists, the very last people we would expect to be taken by it. Philosophers, too. Was it possible? Was there any chance that there was more to it than I thought of these Christian intellectuals? 
And it wasn't just a matter of them keeping their childhood faith without examination. Some of them, intelligent people too, were actually converts from atheism and agnosticism. If minds like St. Augustine's and Newman's and Lewis's could wrestle with Christianity and become fortresses of the faith, it had to be taken seriously. Let let me say this to you. If if you're here and, and you would say, I follow Jesus, where do you stop letting his authority become the ultimate rule of your life? Where do you claim, yes, I appreciate his authority, I appreciate what he's done for me, but ultimately, do you look back in the sermon and you say, two-thirds of that I can do? Jesus is not saying that. He's saying all of this you must be submitted to. You must be submitted to this. Look, intelligent people across the world have submitted with more degrees than Jesus ever had, have bent their knee to his wisdom and authority. Shouldn't that cause us pause to ask that question? Shouldn't we have to stop and say, how much do we think we're that much smarter or there's that much of a wisdom differential between me and Jesus? Would you leave it tried? If you're here even this morning and you, and you intellectually have struggles with it, that's fine. All these people have. Try it on. Wrestle with the authority. That what, what built plausible structures for people like Sheldon Van Auken is, is that he went and actually met with these people. He read it. He lived in it. He asked the questions. Is that scary? Because most of the time in our narrative of authority, it's who has the loudest voice. But what we see in Jesus is the complete opposite. It's not just what he said in wisdom, but how he said it in humility. There's a passage right after this in in Matthew 13. It says this about Jesus. I think it's really interesting. It says, and when Jesus had finished these parables, he went away from there and coming to his hometown, he taught them in their synagogue so that they were astonished and said, where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? Is not, this carp- is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary? And are not his brothers James, Joseph, and Simon, and Judas? And are not all his sisters with us? Where then did this man get all these things? Listen to this verse. And they took offense at him. But Jesus said, a prophet is not without honor in his hometown. And he did not do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. What else separates Jesus from any other philosopher, thinker, or authority is the fact that he never used his authority to bully people into the kingdom. When it says not as their scribes, the thing that kept happening over and over, and you can read about it in the scriptures, is that they were laying heavy burdens on everyone around them. They used the law, the scribes and the Pharisees and religious leaders did, to say, if you want to submit to authority, submit to ours. Look how we're doing it. But Jesus does a completely different thing here. And notice that even They're offended by him, and he could have shown his power. He could have done works that he did right after this. But he doesn't. He doesn't manipulate people by his authority. He submits himself and becomes a humble servant. It's his humility 
that, that transforms. I read an article re- recently in the Atlantic. It was really fascinating. It was written by a, a psych professor um, at the Naval Academy, academy that even different than other universities that is very structured and orderly. Think of this. And the, and the uh, uh, article is entitled, uh, <clears throat> When Mentorship Goes Off Track. I thought this was really interesting. And it was in an a interview format. And at the end of the interview, the uh, interviewee, the psych professor, had something really fascinating to say. The interviewer asked this, what is the most effective way to approach building these relationships, especially with people who are different from you? And the psych professor answered, I really encourage and counsel humility. And this often comes up in the case of mentorship. You need to be really careful about approaching someone with different set of experiences from your own, with a sense of humility and learning orientation. And for me, that goes beyond situations where there is conflict or dysfunction. I would say that humility is one of the hallmarks of really good mentorship in general. That is the way that this psych professor summed up what it means to be a good mentor, is to show humility. Like, that's just a characteristic of what we're seeing here, but Jesus doesn't just show that he lives that. And not only does he give a sermon, he actually submits himself under every portion of it. He never takes himself out from any, of any of it. He never puts someone else in that category. And isn't that the interesting thing? Like we just said, Jesus, more than anyone else, talks about heaven and hell in the Bible, exclusive truths that make us squirm, and yet he submits himself in deep humility. And who are the people that come to him? Who are the people that eat with him, that want to touch him, that want to be around him? They're the people that were labeled sinners, The people that typically would think, exclusive truth, I can't live in that world. I can't do that. Yet what was it about Jesus that displayed humility in the midst of his great, grand wisdom? He could have left it there in wisdom, but he doesn't. He he lives out how he showed his wisdom was in profound humility. People were astonished, not just at Jesus saying, but it says that people were astonished that who came and sat with Jesus. Shouldn't that cause us to have pause for a moment? Are we really living in a reality of following Christ? If there are people, and possibly even in this room, that would say, I I don't know how much I buy this exclusive truth thing. Wouldn't it be interesting to show a different narrative than we have today? As I was talking to my 15-year-old nephew and saying, hey, what do you think about authority? Like, if you were to hear a sermon on authority, what, would, what comes to your mind? What would your friends think of that? And immediately he said, there are certain people in positions. When I think of authority, I think of no freedom. These people are here and our freedom is curtailed. And isn't that our cultural distinctives? That we think of authority and freedom in antithesis. But Jesus actually, what would it be like if the greatest mind of wisdom who held the greatest authority could actually give you the greatest freedom? Wouldn't that show people a different gospel? Isn't the gospel good news? Isn't that what it actually means? Good news? 
then why are we always living in an authority of bad news? Why aren't we displaying the humility with that wisdom that we submit ourselves to? Because it's not our standard, it's someone else's, it's Jesus. People were astonished that these people would even eat with Jesus. Jesus, do you even know who this person is? Those are recorded narrative accounts of people saying that to him. And wouldn't we think the same? Even in this room, if you're sitting there and you kind of find yourself under a thumb of authority, are you sure you're following Jesus? Yes, you should feel pressure of that, but it's not your burden to lift. Isn't it why Jesus submitted himself to every line of that sermon? He doesn't just give a sermon and say, good luck. There have been religious sects who have actually taken the, the, the Sermon on the Mount out of scripture and said, this isn't even really a part of Jesus's life because they see it as another system that we have to try and live in to support ourselves. But Jesus is saying, I have to submit myself to this authority myself. How do we break the cultural narrative of that? How do we break that by showing both wisdom and humility? I love what, Sheldon, what, what drew Sheldon Van Auken even more than the intellectual concepts of Christianity was this. And I want you to hear his, his story, another section from A Severe Mercy. Listen to what he says. These were our first friends, close friends. More to the point, perhaps, all five were keen, deeply committed Christians, but we liked them so much that we forgave them for it. We began hardly knowing we were doing it to revise our opinions, not of Christianity, but of Christians. Our fundamental assumption, which we had been pleased to regard as an intelligent insight, had been that all Christians were necessarily stuffy, hidebound, or stupid people to keep one's distance from. We had kept our distance so successfully indeed that we didn't know anything about Christians. Not that assumption soundlessly, now that that assumption soundlessly collapsed, the sheer quality of the Christians we met at Oxford shattered our stereotype. And thenceforth, a reference in a book or a conversation to someone's being a Christian called up an entirely new image. Moreover, the astonishing fact sank home, that our own contemporaries could be at once highly intelligent, civilized, witty, fun to be with, and Christian. Would it be that we show a whole new authoritarian narrative? That we listen so much to someone like Jesus that it transforms the way that we walk, we live, we act, because it doesn't just leave you up front to be a nice person in your office, to do your work and then go home. It doesn't leave you to be, okay, we we finished the day in our home, kids are in bed, we just made it. It drives you to actually be a new person in character. It drives you to see yourself different. And you know what links this wisdom and humility? is what you see in front of you at this table. You see, this table is the link. And here's the link you see. I don't know if you realize that as we look through the Sermon on the Mount, 
From the beginning to end, and every so often, Jesus would do this interesting thing that he would link it all back to himself. It was like a thread that you'd catch. He said at the beginning, all the law and prophets are fulfilled by me. Even after that, he said, when you're persecuted for my sake, he would link things back. Do you know what the link between wisdom and humility is? What sets Jesus apart from any other is the word fulfillment. That's his authority. He had impeccable wisdom. He had incredible character and humility. But what made it so is that he fulfilled every stroke of the Sermon on the Mount. Coming to this table, and I say this including myself, the one standing at it, having to pronounce these words to you, I have no authority to come to this table and to eat here with the exception that Jesus himself has invited me. This isn't my body, this isn't my blood, it's his. I have no authority to claim in that. It's not your body and blood, it's not mine, it's his. And even so, it's his humility that it's his body and blood that he submits to be given, to be eaten, and his blood to be shed to forgive your sins. Come to this table this morning in wisdom and humility of Jesus. And if you're here this morning and maybe the footholds of reality of that authority of Jesus seems a little bit like, I don't, I don't know if it's my authority. I don't know if I can sit in that. Please don't come forward and take it because you don't wanna take his body and blood and, and act like you're claiming that he's the authority and not. That's, that's actually would be against your integrity. Come forward and receive in joy and gladness because there's only been one who fulfills wisdom and humility. It is in Christ. And you can come forward in joy. That's how you live the Sermon on the Mount. You see, the end drives you all the way to the beginning to say, okay, I'll read the Sermon on the Mount now. (laughs) That way I can read it and know that it's not for my despair or my arrogance, but in Jesus. Let's stand now and read together.